Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours this is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to show 638. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome back to Starship Sofa. Yes, we are still heading into deep space with number 638. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have the main fiction, which is Seven Letters by Amy Ogden. And this is an original to Starship Sofa. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, we have an original to Starship Sofa today. Yes, Seven Letters by Amy Ogden. Amy Ogden is a former science teacher and software tester. She now writes stories about sad astronauts and angry princesses. Her short fiction has also appeared in Analog, Fireside, Beneath Sister Skies, and her novella Local Star is forthcoming from Interstellar Flight Press. Now this story is narrated by Summer Brooks, who is a story addict who watches too much television. She enjoys putting her encyclopedia sci-fi geek knowledge to the test in discussions about sci-fi, horror and comics. She's been doing just that on Slice of Sci-Fi since 2005 as a co-host, producer, host and AIC and as the Babylon podcast co-host from 2006 to 2012. Summer is also an avid reader and writer of science fiction, fantasy and thrillers with a handful of published credits to a name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy action adventure and a monster movie extravaganza. She also narrates for Tales to Terrify and Escape Pod, amongst others, and has doing audiobooks in her sights. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Seven Letters by Amy Ogden T. In ten years, Damia would go home again as a refugee, a victor, a pilgrim. Today, though, now, though on the sickly backwater world to which she'd fled, there was no hope of that kind of future, no hope at all. She huddled under the rough blankets that the strangers here offered her. She closed her eyes when their incomprehensible imperial dialect rolled over her, arguing over her fate, most likely. However far she fled from the ambit, some things could never change. Somewhere in the tangled wilds of Sosova, the light courier craft she'd stolen grew cold beneath the double moon. The empty fuel canisters she'd jettisoned in the atmosphere would offer shelter to local flora and fauna. It could not be far outside this little town, over which broken imperial towers still stood like the memories of the dead. It seemed impossible that she could ever find the thing again, though not without staggering back through dreams and darkness the same way she'd come. Do you know who I am? She asked them, on the cusp of a broken bubble of hysteria. Of course they didn't know who the Imperial Laureate was. That was why she'd come here across hollow, wasted space. They didn't know who the Imperatrix was, either. When she could open her mouth again, only the reach of the spires came out, and the strange people with their strange talk fell silent. It was the old version, the one written for the celebration of the fiftieth year of the Imperatrix's reign, and Damia gagged on the forced Hendeka syllables. She bent her neck and vomited on the floor between her feet. The man who'd brought her here, into the strange little house, was named Alay, she thought. She had tried to steal fruit from his market stand, and he'd struck with his fist, then picked her up in his arms and carried her here. His home? 
What passed for a prison here? Wherever it was, this place could not be worse than what accommodations the ambit would have offered her. Damia's face ached. The parts of her that had once been hailed as laureate inscribed couplets in the medium of bruised skin and flesh, praised the incandescence of pain over the absence of sensation. But the rest of her, flensed back to base animal instinct and wiser for it, flinched away from Elay when he shimmered in front of her like a mirage, both here and not. In his hands he held a stoneware cup of black liquid that roiled like a fever dream. The white steam made Damya cough when she breathed it in, and the people behind Alay murmured until a stern word from him cut the silk ribbon of their whispers short. He folded her hands tightly around the cup and said firmly, Delelorca. Then he touched Damya's throat and nodded at her. Telelorca, she croaked back to him, and he bared his teeth in a smile. It was the first sliver of Sosovan she would learn, and some day she might yet learn to mean it, too. But not yet, not for these lean gifts. Thank you. Okay. It took two years of saving before Damya could afford a boat of her own. Imperial credit did not spend here. Elay and his husband, her saviors, her only friends, found her a job as a common sailor on a fishing boat, and her accounting in Sosovan coins grew slowly over that time. She learned more than how to best apply a mop to a ship's deck, though she did learn that, and learned it well. From the languid chatter of the sailors, she began to muster her own small army of Sosovan syllables, albeit a despairingly ungrammatical one. She learned the vagaries of the ocean and its complex patterns of high tides and low, and how to navigate by Sosovan skies. She learned to stop using the word Sosovan altogether. and replace it with Crate Loala Ratoe. That was what they called themselves now, after 6,000 years separation from the imperial ambut. Sosova was only an imaginary word on an imperial star chart. Instead, it should be Crate Loalara, an ugly little word for an ugly little place, a string of half-hearted cities around the thick waistline of a shady world orbiting a dusty pink sun. Damya thought she could come to quite hate the place, given the opportunity. But more than she hated Sosova, she hated the shining black cities of the Koliatora. She hated the spires of the Imperial Tower. She hated the sweltering in two bright cells at the fortress's high reaches. She hated the idea that she might find herself so imprisoned one day for the Imperatrix's judgment to be seared into her skin on the breath of each sunrise, as it would be seared onto Xaros each day, since Damia's escape and every day in the future. But no use thinking of that now. Sailing was the first physical labor she had performed since her days as a scholast. 
The work was a chance to learn many things, and it was a chance to forget many more. When she told her captain that she had earned enough to pay for her own boat, the other woman did not congratulate Damia or become angry. She only said, Hang the mop up to dry before you go. And then, as Damia stood absorbing the send-off, fishing, bad business, too many storms. And off she went before Damia could begin to guess whether she was joking or serious. The years hadn't offered her much instruction on the Kreloalaratue concept of humor. Alay came down to the docks while she was putting her own touch on her boat in preparation for its inaugural voyage. Her assigned berth lay in the ragged shadow of the old imperial bridge that had once spanned the bay inlet before the river had changed its course. Here and there along the shore, the husks of white-shelled imperial towers still stood over dark slate roofs. Sosova had forgotten that the ambit had once touched these shores, but Damia could not help but remember. When she hailed him, Elay set down the baskets of fruit that he would sell at the morning market and leaned over the rail to squint at the rust-red letters she'd painted on the aluminum hull. Ambit's Reach, she'd written, in imperial script. Rain washes everything away, Elay said. He reached down and smeared the first letter, whose paint had not quite dried. Not good to get too attached to a thing. It's a boat. It's not a child. It's not a lover. The people here did not care over much for their boats, not even enough to remove the buildup of decay that sent each ship to the harbor bottom. Tomia thought that if she took care to scrape the hull once every few days, she might save the trouble of buying a new boat every year or two, as the rest of the fishing fleet did. She'd save money, build a miniature fleet of her own. Fish was a staple food, and it paid well enough. Better yet if you didn't sink a small fortune along with your ship every few months. I know it's a boat. As with its abbreviated syllables, the language lent itself best to simple sentences. Anything more complex gave Damia a headache. Layers upon layers of verb expansions and noun declensions. When she'd fled here, she had half expected a language barrier she could step over with a bit of a stretch, like reading from pre-imperial texts in the Biblio Antiquity Collection. But Sosovan, already a half-branched dialect from Middle Imperial, had become a meaningless garble to speakers of Her Majesty's native tongue. The Imperial alphabet of twenty-two letters had dwindled down to a mere seven, and those remaining declined to arrange themselves in any fashion that Damia could comprehend. She had commanded words once, she had written the face of worlds, raised the classes to arms, and brought low those who would undermine the ambit's glory. And, of course, she had brought down the wrath of the Imperatrix. Only once, though. What had the charges been? Ah, yes, criminal harm to the honor and dignity of her imperial majesty. She retouched the letter that Elay had marred. And it's my boat, 
In my home, ships have names. Alea considered this. Your house has a name? Well, no. Thamia's mouth twisted. The long-range courier she had bought on the black market, gutted and fled with, had only an assigned call number. It had been a life raft, and you didn't hang a name on a life raft any more than you nailed a certificate of the Imperatrix's household blessing to its walls. But this name makes me laugh. Not strictly true. There wasn't much to laugh about when it came to the ambit. It made her smile, though. A hard smile that stretched her lips over her teeth. That would have to do. Alay peered at the letters, which would make as much sense to him upside down as right side up. Not very funny, he said. Probably bad luck, too. I don't know. Never seen anyone do it before. So it's a... Damia didn't know the word auspicious in Kretlo Alaratoe. A good day for you. Alay moved aside as she scrambled over the railing. There. Now I'm ready to be a productive citizen. A real Kretlo Alaratoe at last. Now Alay did laugh and laugh and laugh. Damia might have been offended if she weren't so confused. Ah, Tarea, he said finally. That was the best he could do when it came to her name. He laid one hand on the back of her neck and patted it, a familial sensation, though they were very nearly of an age. Dear one, you aren't Kreloalaratue. You are Keloala. Keloala. She'd heard the word before, but then so many words sounded the same. Perhaps the accent had fallen on a different syllable and rewritten the meaning entirely. What does that mean? It means... Alay scrunched his brows and closed his eyes. Then he shrugged one shoulder up and down. It means not Kretloala Ratoe. Well, what did that mean? Alien? Foreigner? Elay pursed his lips at Damia's sour look and tapped her behind the ear with two fingers. A familiar gesture, literally. Damia had never seen two adult Kretloalaratoeireil do it to one another, only parents to their children. We are ourselves, Tarea. That is all. And what am I? Hungry. Relola is back from the hunt. Arrowbird for dinner tonight. He'll be happy to see you. Of course, you are coming for dinner. Getting steamrolled by a leg could be frustrating, but today Damia smiled and enlisted him to help pull the tarp over the boat to protect it from the evening's rain. They walked down the docks side by side. Not only had Relola brought in a string of arrowbirds, but he had landed a bearded claw beast, one of the large leather-scaled reptile-adjacent creatures that burrow deep in the tangle wilds. Claw beasts could be vicious. Two hunters had died last year after chancing upon a nest, 
and Elay made a spectacle of Führer's fussing over Relola, which Relola seemed pleased to take as his due. He cleaned his prize in the yard behind their little house, in between the back wall and Elay's fruit bushes. A small crowd of young onlookers stared from the street at the flash of his knife and the strength in his arms as he hefted the carcass up to hang from a tree branch. No clawby steaks tonight, he told Elay and Damya, who sat to the side drinking cumps of Iraq, Damya's contribution to the meal. Clawbees needs to cure for a week. Curing draws all the toxins out. Kretloalaratoe didn't have much in the way of expressions of contingency. Relola is cooking, Damya said, and sipped her arak. This was good arak, fermented flowers and nectar. She couldn't say for certain it was as good as the honey wine she'd had back home, but she couldn't say it was worse either. She wouldn't have minded a cup of each to make the direct comparison. When Alay cooks, I go home early. Relola laughed, but Alay only stretched. A rock dripped from the rim of his cup and ran unheeded down over his fingers. I can be patient for claw beast, he said, but your arrow birds suffer for the comparison. Ah, Relola stripped the last of the skin from the carcass. Now a week's worth of sun would destroy the deadly chemicals in the claw beast's flesh. Bird or beast, it's all keloala. You are grateful to your excellent husband for such a fine meal. He wiped his hands on his pants and pointed at the flask. Now pour me some of that arak. I have to stand over a hot stove. I won't be thirsty standing over a hot stove. The familiar word he'd used pulled Damya up out of the depths of her arak. Keloala, not Kretloalaratoe. The claw beasts, the arrow birds, and Damya. She stared into the dead thing's glassy amber eyes and did not look up when Relola went into the house for a clean shirt. Later, after the sun had set and the bones had been picked clean and a bottle of a rack had been emptied, Relola sat beside the yellow fire and sang. He had a lovely voice, one that would have served well to sing the morning and evening hours from the heights of the Koliatura. But it was good to have that voice filling only the warm, close space of the yard and not echoing in a great hollow city. When a great Lualaratawe man sang, mostly it was men, the women sang only working songs, at least where Damya could hear, he omitted the already scarce consonants. Only the vowels, open-mouthed and true, rang out from Relola's mouth. A beautiful sound, though it did make trying to absorb the music's meaning a challenge for Damya. She frowned into her empty cup, trying to divine some understanding, and did not notice when Ele leaned in until he spoke. I call you Keloala, he said. You are not Kretloalaratawe. To name you Keloala is not an unkindness. Keloala is a truth. He settled back in his chair. 
You worship this, this grasping elder. No word for imperatrix here, of course. The seeds of your life, seeds buried and gone. Ke loala hoard for winter. Not kret loala ratawe. Dreams stacked up high, dreams to fill the sky. No, dreams do not build bridges, Tarea. Not across puddles, not between worlds. Anger flared up wetly behind her eyes. There was every reason to be angry with the imperial ambit and no opportunity to express it. Being upset with Ale was convenient but pointless. She blinked rage away and tried to cast her own fortune for her own benefit as much as his. I am not Kretloalaratoe. She struggled for a way to express her future, her immense potentiality, in the few sharp syllables afforded her. Then she changed tacks. I make myself Kretloalaratoe. I make myself. I work hard on the boat. I earn money. I write again in Kretloalaratoe. People love my work and listen. When she heard herself say it aloud, she knew it was true, or rather, that it would be. That was her gift, wasn't it? Words that knew the power of truth. And then, I am Kretloalaratoe. Elay, who reached out and patted her cheek. His eyes were amber like the claw beast's, but not clouded like its were and what she saw in that clear view made her turn her head. Back to Relola, back to open, empty sounds of song. He sings beautifully, she said, to change the subject. No, said Ele. Relola sings like a goat in heat. He lifted a hand and pointed three fingers at his husband. But when the god comes down upon him, the god sings beauty. And for a little while, I am married to a god. He smiled and opened his arms to Relala and spread his legs as well. Relala approached, still singing, and climbed onto Ele's lap. His voice rolled to Damia along the curve of Ele's neck, and even when Ele's mouth found his, that did not stop the melody, only changed the almost words of O's and E's into a breathy staccato ah-ah-ah. When they began to rub against each other, Relala's pelvis atop Elay's, Damia was too drunk to get up and walk home and too tired to hold their behavior up to imperial standards of modesty. She watched them in the fading shadows from the fire, and Relala's song echoed in the hollow spaces where she had once carried sorrow. E. Among the Kretloalaratoerel, the working day was four hours long. At least this was true in the town where Damia had made her home. She had never taken her shipbound home to the skies again to see if Kretloalaratoe was Kretloalaratoe, no matter where on this forgotten world you went. Four hours appeared to be the length of time a man or woman of the village could work and make enough money to afford a normal lifestyle, 
as well as the lengthy stretch of luxury time to which people here accustom themselves. To Damia, who had worked six-hour days as a laureate and twelve to fourteen between the study rooms and the chore list as a scholast, this lifestyle seemed sluggish at best and indolent at worst. A full ten hours on her boat let her amass money quickly, and she saved what she didn't need to spend on survival. She saw Elay and Relola and their friends less often, but within months she had enough to buy a second ship and to pay others to staff it, too. Finding willing employees, however, proved to be the problem. She posted messages on the local data group and tacked them up in analog on the posts and pillars of the marketplace. Finally, she asked Alea over to her home for a bowl of her best silver-scale stew. And while they ate in the shadow of the vine-grown spacecraft, she asked whether her solicitations, painstakingly written in her best Kretloalaratoe, had some error or awkward wording she had missed. Nothing is wrong with your words, Tarea, Elay said, and set his tablet aside, face down. His lips twisted, half smile, half frown, an expression Damia had long since grown used to. The problem is the shape your words make. We enjoy our ekeloale, that's all. You know ekeloale? Of course I know. Rest, relaxation, sloth. Peace and quiet. No, Elé sighed, and yes. He scratched his belly while staring off into the middle distance. Damia didn't press him. When she nagged for answers, he tended to clam up entirely. Relola was more forthcoming, but off on the hunt again. She worried about him, out there among the claw beasts and tree cats all by himself at his age, but Alay had never seemed concerned, so she tried to contain her fears. Ekeloale is time to be a person. That's ridiculous. I'm still a person working. Explanations burned away in the heat of Damia's irritation. She fumbled for simple sentences among the ashes. My brain thinks. My body is mine. Elay tapped two fingers on his open palm, a gesture of rebuke. This one she seemed to see more and more often as the days lengthened into summer. Perhaps that was her temper's fault, and not Elay's. She was still not accustomed to weather so warm, not after all her years in the weather-controlled dome beneath the Coleotura's spires. No. A man working is Keleola. He needs money for food, shelter. He wants comfort and safety. He is nothing but need and want. Later, he stops and breathes. He comes back to himself. Now he is human again. Damia stood up. She dusted off her pants, collected the bowls. Elay's stew was cold and barely touched, and put them inside. When she came back out, Alay still sat with his hands on his belly, and she thought she could speak to him without shouting. 
Your rules change all the time, she said. You are Keloala only while you work, but I am Keloala all of the time? He watched her in silence, then leaned forward. His arms braced his knees, both thinner than they had been when she had first met him. She ought to have him over more often while Reloala was away. Who knew what he was eating otherwise? You are forever striving, Tarea. I don't know its name. The name of the thing you strive for. You never name your striving to me. You never name your striving to Relala. Or he never tells me the name of your sadness. He reached out and curled his fingers around hers. You are not Keloala because you work hard. You work hard because you are Keloala. Do you see? Damya said, It's late. You've eaten enough? Kretloala Ratawe in tenation left her words ambiguous, half question, half statement. Ele put his hands on his own knees and pushed to a stand. His bones creaked, and Damya cringed for him and her own weary limbs. I am old, he announced. To the night or to her, it didn't much matter. My bones tell me lies. What do they tell me? I am a helpful man. Oh, the lies echo in the cage of my ribs. Can I not set them free? To be Keloala is a weary thing. There is no fault in the deafness of the Keloala. There is no fault in the silver scale who struggles in the net or the tree cat pinned by arrows. He rested one hand on her shoulder, just for a moment, then turned and walked off into the lengthening shadows. She watched him go, stooped shoulders half hiding his gray head, and did not go back into her ship until the evening swallowed him up. Tommy went back out on her boat the next morning. She did not post any more requests for employees, and she did not purchase a second vessel. Alay did not come to see her off, not that day and not the next. She turned the bow out into the wide harbor, cast her nets, and dragged in her catch, threw back the fish that would not sell. Out of some sense of defiance, or spite, which was really only another name for defiance turned sour, she had her boat back in its slip by the noon hour. But when she went to the marketplace, she kept close to the dockside and did not walk down to the far end where the fruit sellers hawked their wares. And since she did not have Ele or Elola's house to visit, she spent those spare hours in her own silent home. She listened to the scraps of music and dramas that trickled through the ansible. She silenced the damnable thing when sweet-voiced singers delivered the good news of the Imperatrix's mercy and grace. On the fourth day, alone and angry and weary of silence, she took down her data block and scrawled the epigram with which she had opened Meditations on the last month of the twelfth year of the reign of her imperial majesty. Then she erased those words with a flick of her thumb. And then, 
For the first time since coming to Kretlo Alara, she wrote something new. She wrote it in halting Kretlo Alaratoe. Simple words, simple cadences. A misshapen little poem to her eyes, but it would do. It would have to. She revised it once, then read it aloud in all its staccato glory. She had to manually retype it in order to upload it to Ale's account, as her data block was hardly compatible with local standards. The final version of Keloala read, The honeybee lacks the thinking mind's wisdom to come in from the working day, but she may yet learn to linger on a single flower. Bees and men are not kin, but we are good to one another. She sent the file and turned back to her data block, hoping more words would flow behind these first few. But a chime from the local system made her turn back. An error. Elay's account had declined her file. Perhaps he'd blocked incoming messages from her. She gnawed her lip like an anxious teenager, then straightened her shoulders like the seasoned woman she was. She could apologize for her temper face to face. She'd had plenty of opportunities for that with Xara once upon a time, though she was rather out of practice anymore. Less than a week, and it was already an unfamiliar feeling to walk the dirt street that wound around the outskirts of the city, out to Ale and Relola's house. She carried a bottle of Iraq under one arm and a string of fish slung over the other, a double offering, flesh and blood. When she drew close, she heard voices, raised in cheer and a little drunkenness. In spite of herself, she prickled. She knew she wasn't their only companion, but something of the merriment going on behind her back, a back she had turned even so, had the sting of ambit gossip and backroom politicking. No, there was none of that here. Elay did not scheme and snipe, and if she was his and Relola's family pet, at least she was a fondly kept one. She relaxed the set of her jaw. Clenched teeth could be construed as rude in polite Crelo Alaratoe company, or perhaps a sexual come-on, or perhaps both. When she strolled up to their front gate, her head was high and her smile easy. Elay was nowhere in sight, but Relola held court on the lawn with more guests than Damia had ever seen at his house. A sort of buffet had been laid out scattershot, clobby's talons to suck the marrow from, jelly sauce and a pile of puffy loaves as high as Damia's knee, bowls of sour fruits and pickled fish. When Damia laid her hand on the gate, Relola looked up and lifted his cup. Ah, he cried, elle est nue. She comes, she always comes. When few words are left, only the truth comes out. What few words? The conversation split apart on either side of Damia as she approached Relala where he sat on the porch, this half-talking about what the weather meant for the Lorelorot harvest. That half-talking about whether an unnamed cousin was finally going to marry her long-suffering fiancé. 
Damya held out the arak and the fish, her suddenly paltry offering, and Relala accepted them with a gracious murmur. Why is everyone here? Where is Elay hiding? Not hiding, Tarea. Relola smiled and uncapped the arak. The weathered hollows of his neck throbbed with the long swallow he drew. To hide is active, to avoid being found. You can find Elay in the house. He waits there. He doesn't hide. He smiled still as she walked past him and into the house, where the door stood open. The cool evening wind ruffled the hangings on the walls and the leaves of the garden alike, no real barrier between the two. He smiled so she knew, but did not expect to find Alay laid out on the bed, arms folded across his chest. He smiled, too, as knowingly as his husband, but more peacefully. On the table beside him rested an empty cup, which gave off a toxic whiff of lelele root. She wondered if he'd grown it in his own gardens or bought it from the apothecary in the marketplace. And since she didn't know what else to do, she curled his stiff fingers around the data block and left it, left him, left the room behind. She shut the door on the way out, but one of the other guests jumped up to open it again and shouted at her in a rapid jumble of Krelo Alaratawe that stung Damya's eyes and ears alike. I don't understand, she said, and it was Relola, of course, who sucked his teeth and took pity on her. Stomach cancer. He walked the path of Oala Teleolau. It took her a moment to place that word. It contained roots related to death and gratitude alike. Planned suicide. Relala patted the stoop beside him, but Damya did not sit. Her aching bones might not stir again if she settled there, and she wasn't prepared to make that concession. There's no grieving now. The doors are open. Elle has flown. He studied her from under his dark, pointed brows. He has been flying for a long time. Now the tether is cut. He didn't say goodbye. Tarea, said Relola. He said goodbye to us, has been saying goodbye to us ever since the day we met him. He held out the bottle of Iraq, well on its way to half empty now. She took it, and her legs bent beneath her, as if by Relola's volition and not her own. R. The Relais-Lorat bushes in the garden foundered without Alay's touch. At first, Damya had a mind to tend them herself, but her efforts proved fruitless in more ways than one. They were a fussy plant, bred in the days when Sosova had belonged to the Ambit. Before the cataclysm had divided the system from all but its closest cousins, she tried to explain to Relola the nature of the gamma-ray burst that had wiped worlds off the map and rewritten imperial shipping lanes. To fit Kretlorala into a greater context. But he told her, 
Kretloala was the only context necessary to understand his life, to understand hers, too. But what had it been like in this place in the years after its severance from the ambit, as imperial technology failed and imperial infrastructure crumbled? Damya wondered if those dark years were why the Kretloalaratoe still responded to statements of, but this is the shape of things, somewhere long ago, someplace far away, with disinterest and disdain, a nearly hereditary impatience with how things had been in favor of how they were now. Perhaps that was why the garden struggled, too. Damya devoted her efforts to guessing how Ale would have done things. She ought to have sought out what would best serve her now. The Ralelorat's chief failing was that it was not self-fertilizing. Of course, Elay had learned the fruit grower's arts in his long-ago schooling. He had never shared them with Damia nor Elala. The bushes went to flower, shed their petals, and failed to come up green again with the spring. Damia cursed the grasping, thorny roots until Relola came out to shoo her along home. The Ambit data block had held up remarkably in its years, without updates or trade-ins. Still, Damia had not suffered to send it to eternal rest alongside Alay. Now when Damia wrote, she wrote on a Kretloalaratoe tablet, or she paid for precious paper and ink and scratched her words out by hand. Thus did she bleed out essays and poems and sagas, seven letters rearranged in infinite combinations. She read her work aloud in artist gatherings at a favorite tavern and at the stationer's shop. There was nowhere to buy books here. If Damia wanted literature, she must either write it herself or go listen to another's recitations. She never received more than a polite murmur, a pat on the head. But she did not write for them, nor even for Alay or Xara. Damia was the imperial laureate, and she wrote for herself. She had still not learned to find the beauty in Kretloalaratoe, and after all this time and such sparse space for it to hide in, perhaps she never would. But there was a certain power and utility in the few sounds available to her, an undeniable flow toward meter, rhythm, inevitability. Relala spent more time in Damia's house now. To escape Elea's ghost? Or to keep a closer eye on her? Or for some other, more obscure reason? She was home more often now, too, scribbling furiously, furious in anger and frantic pace alike. Only three or four hours in the morning out to sea, and sometimes none at all if she had a spectacular take the day before. When the aluminum boat finally surrendered itself to the harbor, she did not buy another, but sought employment from another seasoned captain. She had enough to buy another boat, but not the desire for one even if it meant a much smaller take. She bent her back alongside the younger deckhands, and she did not complain when her bones groaned with the weight of a net, and she did not seek more than her share of shifts. 
While fish writhed at her feet, she composed cinquains. While her mop painted abstract shapes on the deck, she limbed an epic, a torch-bearing hero's journey into darkness. But she had no ending for the tale, and so it lived only as an outline in the backmost corners of her mind. Sometimes she read her work aloud to Relola, while he knitted or swept out the broadleaf pollen and stray leaves that had blown into her ship. He rolled his head side to side on his neck, in tempo with her words. An easy nod, yes, Tarea, very nice. His opinion didn't really matter, but it mattered that she offered him the chance to have one. It mattered to her. She didn't know what song played behind those dark-hooded eyes, but at least he still included her in the chorus. Only once did he offer her something more, a criticism she could take to heart. Ah, Terea, he'd sighed, after she'd finished the recitation of a poem about a fishing vessel foundering at sea and parting a pair of young lovers. You go straight from the beginning to the end. From the first line, I know how the story goes. She looked at the first words she'd written again. The harbor, we all know, is a jealous soul. She finishes with her lovers, and she never gives them back after. The argument stayed behind her clamped lips. Arguments with the Cretlo Alaratoe had never yet gotten her anywhere. You want so badly to get to the ending, Rilola said, and shook his head. You are a very clever Keloala, but you always struggle so hard. You want to get to the ending before the beginning has arrived. Tell us about the clouds, the woman when she was young, her cousins, how she laughed and wrestled with them. When the man first loved her in the forest, that soft moss that caught in their braids and stayed in their clothes for days. No one wants to hear about that, Damya said, and Relola shrugged. It was a cold night in the late spring when Relola brought her a box of marrow candies and a song. Cold enough that he had to rap at the closed door, and she hurried to let him in. A gift, he said, presenting her with the marrow candies, a bit expensive, even for a beloved family pet. But the thought itself was the real kindness. Celebrating one's naming day was an imperial custom, but not a Cretlo Aloratoe one. She felt a hundred years older, not just one, but good company and sweets would ameliorate that. Relola had the latest gossip from his cousins, who lived two cities up road into the north, near the edges of livable territory before the water became undrinkable and the terrain steep. The roads were bad in Province Lateau, and the wealthy men and women who had bought their council seats had declined a repair levy. The boat factory downtown would have a brick wall constructed down the middle so that both the daughters of the owner would inherit equally and the town would be spared a familial battle in the streets. Tekelo, the candy shop owner, sent his greetings. The ship couldn't be heated without igniting the engines along with the trees and the vines that grew up around them, but they huddled together under knit throws 
In the gentle glow of scandal and surprise rolling off Relola's stories kept Damia cozy, too. Beneath his voice, the ansible crackled with soft background music. Glimmers swam through to Damia when Relola paused for breath. A children's choir, most likely high-caste castrati, warbled a hymn to the ambit's reach. Scraps of an interview with a leading imperial geneticist and population planner. And then, in a brief burst, a newscaster reading the regiment council's ruling against the imperatrix. A decree that stripped her of title, station, and hereditary privileges. And of dignity, Damya thought. Inside her, a bubble of hysterical laughter broke and poured out between her fingers. What had finally tipped the scales? Which counselor's child seduced, used, and not so quietly discarded? Which planetary estate seized and depleted? The outpouring of mania slowed, then dried up. Only when she had calmed herself and convinced Relola of her well-being did he bid her farewell for the night and urge her to take some rest. She didn't even try to explain the nature of the seismic shift that had just occurred billions of miles away. Not a gamma ray burst, but a cataclysm all the same. What would be left when these shards accreted into new shapes? Damia was late to the docks the next morning. Her ship had already put to sea. She went home without wages and lay in the lee of her bunk, until the next day's light. O. Oh. Every day Damya gets up and thinks, maybe today is the day. Every day this thought sends a shiver of possibility through her, of hope, of terror. If Xara has survived these last years, she is not the same woman. The woman whose screams once alerted Damia to the arrival of the Imperatrix's own in their home. Xaro has spent time in the sun cells, this is certain. Did that blazing light burn the soul out of her? Or did that come later, in the dark cool mercy of the Imperatrix's reconditioning core? Either way, it doesn't much matter. No, it must matter. Does Xaro still remember her? Think of her? Does she burn with the deep veins of hatred only conditioning can create? Or does she hate Damya on the true and worthy merit of her own failings, as a wife, a poet, a friend? She spends too much time by the Ansible. Once she and Xaro agreed on a specific band, in case of emergency, in case of trouble, the Ansible picks up this band, but it is as empty as the space between Kretlo Alara and the Ambit's borders. Perhaps in the chaos of the post-imperatrix vacuum, Xaro cannot reach an Ansible. Perhaps she doesn't want to. Perhaps she has forgotten the band assignation. Perhaps she has forced it from her mind. Damia does not drink from the fountain of news pouring in from other channels. Her lips are chapped from licking, and sometimes she can see through the papery skin of her hands to her bones. 
They are good bones, she thinks, or they were once. She could hang something worthwhile upon them again, given the right hands to weave it. Her stomach growls. She wonders if she has a job still to go to. It's late, or early. She has plenty of time to get to the docks. She ought to keep up her strength by resting. No, she ought to work so she can buy another day's worth of food. She is old and she is small. A little food can stretch three days, four. She paces the length of her ship. There is a knit hat on her bunk. She pulls it over her hair and crams the loose threads up underneath. The wind tugs them back out again when she steps out the door and into the day. Relala used sea-strand fiber to make the hat, and it itches where it touches Damia's skin. The door stays open behind her, throwing the empty silence after her. It is cool today. No, not cool. Cold. Her gloves aren't in her pockets. The chill stings her nose. Her hands ache and then they stop. She wonders if the numbness will make it hard to grasp the gutting knife this morning. The boat waits in its slip. No one else is aboard yet, but she climbs over the railing and waits. Snow comes before the sunrise. Not much snow, a gentle dusting of flakes. They nestle in the folds of Dami's jacket and hat. Another pair of sailors arrive next. How much time has passed? They cast glances Damia's way as they start laying out the nets for inspection. Oalateleoa, one of them whispers. But he is wrong. Surely sorrow would not take such a way out. No matter the heat of the sun cells, no matter the terrible secret pain of reconditioning, when the captain arrives, she does not order Damia to work. Damia is glad. Her arms do not remember how to bend and turn with the mop's motion. Her eyes are too dull to spot snags in the nets, and her fingers too slow to fix the damage. But she is also afraid. She needs a job. There are so many holes in her belly, at least one of them can be quieted with food. The captain orders her into the cabin. Damia wonders where she can find a job at her age. She could beg on the street. Some may take pity on a weary Keloala. But the captain shoves Damia into the seat behind the navigation desk. She wraps her jacket around Damia's shoulders. She throws a tin of canned lardfish down in front of Damia and orders her to eat. You cannot walk the path of Oalateleoal, the captain says, when Damia stares down at the shining yellow-white flesh. There is no joy in you, no preparation or acceptance. You reject life. You do not embrace death. You are too old to dance away from understanding, Tarea. Stop sliding backwards. Either open your arms to the god of death and smile at her like you mean it, or stand up straight like the grown woman you are and walk back the way you came. 
When Damya's numb hands struggle with the pull tab on the tin, the captain leans in to help her. Then the lardfish slide down into Damya's belly one by one until only the sheen of grease remains on her tongue, until the space inside her rings a little less hollowly. She pushes back the empty tin, and the captain clears it away. The captain tries to call Relola to come collect Damia, but he is off on a hunting trip beyond reach or response. Damia listens to the dull click of the unanswered line. She says, I would like to work for a little while. The captain pats Damia on the back of the neck, just below her skull. Damia has never seen one Kretlo Alaratoe do this to another. She has seen Relola do it to his friend's hunting cats, though. Someone on the crew finds a pair of gloves for her. Waterproof, good leather, claw-beast hide, most likely. She wonders how the poison is drawn out of the leather. Or perhaps it isn't, and it is her body's job to sanitize and clarify. There is an ache in her shoulders as she hauls in the nets of thrashing fish. Her arms tremble, too. But another sailor teaches her a calming chant, an open, rhythmic vowel she has heard from them before. She has never felt entirely welcome to join in. She still doesn't. But the chant binds up the open sore of her mouth, the letter O in monotone through a wide-open mouth and then through closed teeth, an endless sound looped over by unison with the others at work. Another woman adds her voice as melody. Her sweet vowels dart in and out through the net the other voices are weaving and bind the whole thing together. Damia feels a fierce, illicit joy at being part of this sound. The half-words in the melody singer's voice pull at the edges of her mind with gentle fingers, even without their ampsit consonants. Fragmented words and a fractional understanding, the same as it ever was. The melody folds back in on itself, a clever turn of phrase with the right intonation. Now the first part of the song is not a lover's call in the night, but a ribald joke. The soft O's of the sailors give way to laughter. Damia does not laugh, but a smile cracks the corners of her mouth. She can feel her fingers again, and they hurt. L. Her hair has gone fully white by the time she finishes the saga. Relola is as thin and bent as a crook vine these days, still as tough and flexible, too. And he still hunts in the tangle wilds, alone. Is this simple stubbornness, or his own crooked path to Oalatele'oal? That is his own business, and not Damia's. She reads it to a gathered crowd across two nights at Sweet Marrow River, Slabs of loelolo sit on plates, untouched. Not a cup clacks against table, not a murmured word. The gathering doubles in size from the first night to the next. 
as much of a crowd as the tavern has ever seen. Relola sits at the front, nodding in rhythm to her words. They listen. They do not drink the forgotten wine in Iraq. They drink her words. And what words they are! What freedom comes from the constraint of choices! What flexibility in the similarity of syllables! The smallest shift in inflection changes everything, rewrites the entire story. The tale dances in and out among the listeners. The characters dance through the Kretlo Alaratoe world. Damia's imagined heroes and heroines ride the winds through the northern wastes. They clip over the waves of the great storm seas like shimmerfish. And they even fly to the stars on wings stolen from arrow birds. A breathtaking flight, harrowing and exhilarating. But in the end, they return to Earth. As all must do in the end. That is where life takes root, after all. Not in the interstitial spaces between. She finishes late into the second night. Her voice has turned into a red bird's croak. There is no round of formal applause. That would have been due her in the chambers of the Imperatrix. Though, of course, her last work, Meditations, was never formally presented there. Her prosecution was the only acclaim afforded her then. A fulfilling reward and a terrible one. Instead, here, there is a long moment of silence after the last vowel fades. Then someone in the back stands up and tips his chair unceremoniously over. More movement, then. A flicker to her left and right. A crescendo of fallen chairs sweeps the room. She knows she has seen chairs tip before. She cannot remember if it portends good fortune or a forthcoming brawl. She hopes it is nothing serious. She has no courier pilot to seduce this time. She has not enough extra canisters of fuel in her ship to make it all the way back to Ambit space. She braces herself for whatever's coming. And then the first woman steps up and insists on buying her a drink. Three more follow, and more after that. But Damia's head spins. She turns them down with words of gratitude and modest embarrassment. She cannot remember ever having undressed herself down to bare honest modesty in the wake of her reading, but it feels good, like having a young woman's face to turn toward the sun one more time. Later, the chairs have been righted, the bread broken, and the drinks downed. She takes Relola's arm for the long walk home. Longer every month, every week, Damia thinks. He praises her to the moon and back crows over her clever meter and her sinuous story. The stars spin overhead and the treetops bow in close. So close, Damia feels she cannot breathe and that she does not need to breathe. A swirl of words expand and shrink in her lungs. Neither of them speaks one particular praise aloud. This masterwork story of Damia's runs much to Alay's tastes. The Kretlo Alaratoe language does not suit itself well to discussions of contingency, and the Kretlo Alaratoe culture does not suit itself well to taking things past and turning them over and over. 
to looking for new ways to wound oneself with old hurts. There are always new hurts for such a purpose. Sometimes Tadea, Relola sighs in the lee of her courier craft's sleek fins. Sometimes I look at you, and I see something very like the light of humanity in you. Tarea, Kretloala born Tarea, who came to us twenty years younger. He clasps her shoulders briefly. He lets go. His fingers brush the strands of white hair lying on the back of her neck. They are so brittle and come free of her braids so easily now. That, Tarea, is so wise and so very well loved. But you are a gift, too. She remembers the day, perhaps a year past. She remembers the day she offered to marry him. She thought that it would be good to have a reason to move out of the ship, to share one loneliness instead of splitting off into two. A specific and limited sort of intimacy. Relala's old eyes look with longing at the young men and women in the marketplace alike, at the plait-wrapped crowns and braided flower-strewn beards. Damya's eyes have only ever sought out a certain kind of body. That hardly matters now, as little flesh as either of them have left. But Relala reacted with shock, politely covered disgust, a hoarse but gentle reprimand. Relala stoops to kiss her knuckles now, and all the old embarrassment plays out again in Damya's mind. She loves Relala, and he loves her. She turns this fact over and over, but she cannot find a place in her heart where it fits. She decides not to make room for it. Finally, he lets her go, and bids her a good night. Damia lies in her bunk. She has lain in this bunk for ten years now. Her eyes find the porthole, and she numbers the same strange stars, the same flat horizon cut by broken towers, and not gleaming spires. It is no more wrong tonight than it ever has been, and no less either. She waits for sleep to visit, and her patience goes unrewarded. A. There are many words that mean goodbye in Kretloal Aratawe. There are specific ways to bid farewell to acquaintances and lovers, parents and business people. There are suffixes that specify the season and the tenor of the relationship being parted. Some make it clear that a swift reunion is desired, while some are equally clear that it is not. Others are more opaque and leave the possibility to chance, to fate, to the gods who watch but do not interfere in the ways of their people. The word for goodbye that Damia will use is Akeokeoteloa. Akeokeoteloa will signify to Relola a certain warm regard, a respect granted between equals. This will offend him, or at least annoy him. Surely Damia should know better by now. She does know better, and this is why she will close the door on him with this word above all others. She will wish him a keokeloteloa, 
and that word will tell him that she does not expect to meet him again in this lifetime, though it offers up the heady fragrance of potentiality, that nothing is truly knowable, that there is no future that can be perfectly predicted. He will go to the captain of her ship and tell her that Damia is gone into the next life, that she is not dead, but gone, with equal finality. She will write a keokelotelua and each syllable that her stylus scratches will close one door a little farther, will prize open a long shuttered window. She will wait to transmit the note until she has cleared the tangle wild vines that have overgrown her ship's landing gears, until she has tested and double tested the engines, until she has retaught herself the management of the pilot's console and the navigation station. She will send this note, and she will not send the others that she has written and rewritten. She will not send a note that says that for all Kretloala is beautiful and welcoming. It is cruel and withholding. She will not send a note that says she is not content to remain a coddled house cat in her last years, that she wants to be a person again, whatever that is worth, whatever that costs. She wants to be warmed by a son whose face is as familiar as dreams of childhood, and she wants the starry holes punctured in the night sky to match up to the gaps in her heart. She will find a way to make the amends she does not know how to make, and she will answer the questions that fall through her fingers like the fine soft dirt of a forest floor. She will fall down at Xaro's feet or at her grave, or at the unmarked trench outside of the Coliatura, if she must. She will do this, and she will not come back. A message from Xaro has never flitted to her out of the ansible, on broken wings or whole. This could mean anything or nothing. Xaro's silences have always been terrible. This one is too full of possibility. Damia cannot find the words in any language to write meaning into the blank space she holds. One day soon she must put ink to page, collapse the wave function, find out on or under what world sorrow waits for her. But not today. There will be time enough for that. She will fly low over the home she has known, and she will tip her wings in greeting. Akeokeloteloa, that gesture will say, and Relola will look up from his tablet in shock, in grief, in understanding or something close to it. She will not see him when she looks down among the trees and the slate rooftops, though she will try. She will not feel angry or sorrowful, but some teetering point halfway in between. The way between worlds will be long, and there will not be enough fuel. Her extra canisters were used and discarded on the way here, and there is no more to be had on Kretloala. Her path home is a prayer and a gamble. She knows this before she cuts away the first clinging vine, before she holds her breath and switches the engine on to see if it remembers its true nature and purpose. Not a home, but a vessel. The engines will gutter when she is still so far from home, but there will be life in the environmental system for some time yet. 
While she waits, she will edit her meditations. She will find the pieces that were missing the first time through. She will reforge them better, not with the blaze of truth delivered on the ambit's white-hot sword, but with the strength and flexibility of the crook vine. And she will turn on the ansible and call out in the darkness, into the ambit or what remains of it. And she will ask if she has earned the right to come home, to tell her story and the stories that she has learned, to serve in the truest way she knows and in the fashion that she once understood and wishes to understand again. She will bend under the will of the new ambit and strife of its people and above all else, the suffering of Ksara but she will not break. She does not know what lies ahead of her now, but she stretches her arms out toward it gratefully. Damia will go home again as a refugee, a victor, a pilgrim, a human being. If there is something more that calls to her, then she will be that too, and she will write it in her heart with all the names she can devise in any and every language where it can be found. And there you go. Huge thank you to Amy. Thank you so much, Amy. And the summer. That is fantastic. What a story. Thank you indeed. So that is Starship's Over. Put to bed again. We are heading once more into deep space and we will see you in two weeks. So I'd just like to say good night from me. Thank you for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 